There we go. I think we got it right. Hope everybody's getting their electricity back and not too much damage was done. I know I heard about some trees, but thankfully haven't heard anything about any physical damage. Did want to say that I heard the ladies had a great time at their retreat. And just thank you to Haley and Bailey and the work they did and persevering and making that change from wanting to do it at Big Reedy and then moving it to the church building here. And I know all the women that came had a good time and were edified and encouraged. And also just want to encourage the church and say thank you for all of the support that's already gone into Equipped. I know a lot of people have already been involved in the background and in the planning and things of that nature. And if you haven't already, please be sure to register. We are trying to get somewhat to the best of our ability, a consensus on how many people to expect. And so we know our folks from Lehman are coming and you may think in your mind, I know I'm going to be there. But if you could just go ahead and go to the website, there's the equipped information thing on the front. And if you could if you could register for that, it'd be great for us and give us a better idea. But thank you for getting behind this and being involved. It's really been a team effort so far. We're excited. We're almost more a little bit less than a month away and we're looking forward to the workshop in April. The United States Depression and Anxiety Association tells us that in the United States, anxiety disorders are the greatest mental deficit or really the greatest mental disorder that individuals in the states face. More than 40 million people in the United States suffer with some sort of anxiety disorder or some sort of mental struggle. In the New York Times 2015, one author talked about the fact that we're just the anxious Americans. She says that Americans spend over two billion dollars every year on different anxiety medications to sort of temper out our thoughts and how we go about our day. Time magazine ran a study the same year and they found that the people they surveyed in 2018 said 40 percent of them that they were more anxious that year than the year before. And then the American Psychological Association wrote an article entitled United We Stress. And they said, you know, Americans are divided on a lot of things. But one thing we do come together about is this idea that we are stressed, anxious and worried about a host of different things. The things at the top of their list were finances, about things of inflation, family, marriage. And then what some people just called a stream of constant crisis. There just seems to be one thing after another. And as a result of that. We struggle and we stress. Turn your Bible to Philippians 4 this morning. In Philippians, Paul talks about various ideas, and it's been called the epistle of joy, and for good reason. Paul uses those combination of words, joy, joyful, rejoicing, some 16 times throughout the letter as he's writing from a prison cell. And though Paul's in prison, he's not altogether discouraged. Paul's not throwing in the towel. Instead, Paul writes to uplift others, to bring their spirits up to up to par. In fact, he bookends the book of Philippians with this idea in chapter one and verse two. And in chapter four and verse nine, he talks about the grace and peace that come from God. And then in four nine, he says, the peace of God, may it be with you. And so while Paul could have been anxious, worried and maybe even discouraged about a lot of things, instead, he spent his time writing an epistle to encourage other people. You know, sometimes anxiety among Christians is kind of looked down upon. And there may be a mistaken idea that, well, Christians don't struggle with any kind of anxiety or any kind of mental disorder. Or if I was really a good Christian, maybe I wouldn't have these problems. Or maybe people are sometimes guilted into, hey, if you're a Christian, you should just pray and read the Bible and that'll solve it. Don't worry about any medication. Don't seek any professional help. But the Bible is pro-medicine. The Bible is pro-professional help and encourages Christians to do whatever it takes within the realm of God's will to keep and maintain a sound mind. And while that's true, we also shouldn't jump to the other extreme 
which says I need professional help. I need therapy. I need counseling. And the Bible sort of put on the bottom of the shelf. The Bible does not give second class mental health advice. It helps us to be the people that we need to be. What you'll find in Philippians 4 is not Paul saying there's never a time to seek help or to go to other individuals that might be professionals in that area. But what we do find Paul saying is whatever help we would seek should be in addition to what the counselor of life gives us and not in place of it. Let me be clear again and say that all of us struggle with anxiety, stress to various levels, and those that suffer clinically should never be guilted into feeling bad about seeking professional help or feeling like because they're Christians, maybe their faith should be enough. It is enough. There's nothing wrong with seeking help when we need it. But we also need to appreciate that God's word has something to say to us about every area of our lives. And we always sell ourselves short when we neglect his counsel. The world is constantly telling us through its images that there's someone or something to be afraid of. And scripture is constantly telling us that there is someone to put our faith in. The world says, go with your gut. Paul says, go with your God. And so no matter what it is, no matter where we find ourselves in a world that is filled with rampant anxiety and anxiousness, we can be God's people and still have peace. I wonder, what are you worried about even this morning? What are some of the things you're struggling with right now? What are the things you hope and don't happen? Because if they do, you feel like they would just crush you and you'd be unable to recover. What are the things that are at the top of your list that really bring about fear and crowd out the worship of God and the focus on what God is doing in the world, in our lives? And what if there was really nothing in this world that could crush us? What if the peace that we just sung about really is ours and we can enjoy it? Tozer said Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. And sometimes we sing about a peace and we sing about joy. But it's evasive in our hearts and in our lives. Would you allow Philippians 4, 1 through 9 to be a roadmap for us this morning and notice what Paul tells us about the peace that we can have even in a world that's overflowing with rampant anxiety and anxiousness. Notice the text beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, my dearly beloved, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat you also, my true companion, help these women which labor with me in the gospel and with Clement also and with other of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be anything virtuous or anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Those things you both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you notice with me this morning six things that Paul says if we put them into practice, even in a world that's filled with anxiety, the people of God can have God's peace. Number one, Paul says resolve conflict. Philippians chapter four begins. Paul talks about them being his joy and crown. And then he mentions two sisters by name, two names that are difficult to pronounce. You hope you never have the scripture reading on this day. But Yodia and Syntyche are their names, and they seem to be prominent women in the church at Philippi. He calls them out. In fact, he uses the word entreat or if you have the old King James beseech, he uses it twice in verse two, one for each sister. Paul saying you and you, I'm begging you guys to get on the same page and get things right. 
Throughout the book of Philippians, it's been called a book of joy and happiness. And a lot of people assume it was a church without problems. But as you start reading through Philippians, even though it's filled with terms about joy and rejoicing, what you find is they have problems like a lot of the churches Paul wrote to. I would argue every church that Paul wrote to. In chapter two, there's the issue of humility. In chapter three, there's the issue of false teachers. And in chapter four, it's these two sisters that can't get on the same page. And Paul writes and names them. Imagine sitting in this first century congregation, having the letter brought by Epaphroditus. Philippians is read out loud. You get to chapter four, Yodi and Syntyche, probably two prominent women in this church, and they have their names called out. And Paul says, I want you to fix it. But notice why he says they must fix it in verse three. He even calls in a third person, doesn't he? He says, my true yoke fellow, the old tr- translations say, or my ca- companion. Paul's calling in a third representative to help them figure it out. He says, help these women fix their issues because their names are in the book of life. The reality is, if we hope to go to heaven together, we should be able to hold hands in harmony in this life together. And if we can't do the one, we probably won't do the latter. And so Paul is saying to these sisters, since you both plan to go to heaven and your names are in the book of life, Revelation 20 and verse 12, whatever issues you're facing, whatever you're going through together, you can solve it and you can fix it. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if it be possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. Or Hebrews 12 and verse 14, follow peace and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Paul often urges us to have peace with one another and with ourselves. And if we're going to have peace in a world that's rattled with anxiety, it starts here. We've got to resolve conflict. I know we don't like this. And some people, they just dread conflict. But I'm telling you, one of the problems that we face in our society is we don't know how to deal with issues when they come up. Do you know how many people are robbed of peace because they're mad at their parents? about their childhood or something came up and they just sort of pressed it down. They've never really dealt with it and they can't have peace. One survey found that 40 percent of individuals that were in this study said that their greatest source of anxiety and stress was their spouse or their mate. And sometimes a person's in a marriage and there are issues that come up and they say, well, we're just going to keep the peace and not talk about it. But because they don't address it, they can't have peace. Or maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ or something about our children, whatever the case may be. To the degree that we push off the issues and fail to engage and solve them is to that degree we won't ever have true peace. Jesus was right about everything he ever said. And he was right about this. You remember Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault, his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If not, take two or three that in the word of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. And if he won't hear the two or three, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. And then if he won't hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen or as a publican. Why does Jesus say that? Yes, because we need to solve problems in the church. But notice what Jesus says. If there's an issue between you and your brother and you're the offended one, you go to him first. Why? It's not because you're a doormat and it's not because you always let other people have their way. But it is because if you don't go to him, if you don't go to her, it'll rot you from the inside out. Jesus is saying, do yourself a favor. You're having a problem with it. You be the first to go across the fence and resolve the conflict. How are you going to have peace in the world filled with anxiety? Yodi and Syntyche could have that peace if they got their issues solved, if they dealt with the things that were plaguing them. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, it's probably better to be late to worship and earlier to forgive than the other way around. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he says, when you bring your gift to the altar, if you realize when you get to worship, you've got a problem with an image bearer of God, you should leave the gift at the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift until you do that. Your worship will be in vain. Sometimes we've got issues with people. 
in our lives and we think, well, I just won't deal with it. Maybe the issue is with ourselves, something we know we need to fix with ourselves and we don't have the courage. We don't have the heart to deal with the issue. And so we can't have peace or something that can't be changed about ourselves. And rather than just graciously accept it, we fight and we fester and we're robbed of the peace that God wants us to have. The first thing we've got to do is make sure that we resolve conflict. Matthew chapter five and verse nine, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because they'll be called the children of God. You know, these two sisters, they had their names in the book of life. And because of that, they should be able to have peace because Paul's saying you're on good terms with God. Here's a question for us. Are you on good terms with God? If you're on good terms with God, then you may have conflict with other people. And Paul says sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. When you've done everything within your realm of possibility, within your efforts to bring about peace, if you're still at conflict with others, but you're at peace with God, then so be it. But if, on the other hand, everybody in the world counts you an ally and a friend, but you're at conflict with God, then you're in a terrible situation. Isaiah 57 in verse 20, he says, the wicked are like the troubled seas, which cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Maybe somebody needs to obey the gospel and they know they need to put on Jesus in baptism. They've been confronted with the truth and they just try to hide behind it. And maybe after they get this thing fixed and this thing solved, then they'll turn their life over to Jesus. And so long as we delay, we won't have peace. Jesus is our peace. Ephesians 2:14. He made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1:20. And if you don't get it right with him, you won't have peace. But maybe you're already a Christian. And you're at conflict with God. Something God did or didn't do frustrates you. And as a result of that, you won't give him the worship that he desires. You're sort of throwing a spiritual temper tantrum. The way he's running the world or you think he hasn't run the world is upset you. I want you to hear God saying you cannot be at peace in the world while you're at odds with your manufacturer. God gives peace to all of his people. Psalm 29 and verse 11. And so I've got to come to him and receive it. The first thing Paul says about how to have peace in the world that's filled with anxiety is to do the thing that's most uncomfortable for a lot of us. And that's to confront the issues of conflict, whether they're self-inflicted or by others, to do what we can to make things right. Now, here's number two. Paul says, if you're going to have peace, rejoice in the Lord and do it always. This is probably the most famous verse in the book and also the most disobeyed. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says it again for emphasis sake. And again, I will say rejoice. Paul is saying no matter what's going on, you can be an individual. We can be people that rejoice regardless of our earthly circumstances. First Thessalonians five in verse 16 says rejoice evermore or rejoice always. The biblical idea of rejoicing is not just about having a happy feeling on the inside. It's more than that. It's a determination that says no matter what else is going on, I can rest content in that God's in control. Notice how Paul qualifies it. Rejoice where? In the Lord, because if you try to rejoice elsewhere, the world will give you enough things to be frustrated, disappointed and let down about. Turn your Bible to Philippians one and just notice how many times Paul brings up this idea of joy or rejoicing. I told you it appears prominently throughout the book in Philippians chapter one and verse four. Paul says he makes his request with joy because he's heard about their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at Philippians chapter one and notice verse twenty five. Paul says he's concerned about their joy and the furtherance of their faith. Look at Philippians chapter two and notice what Paul says in verse two. Paul says, fulfill my joy. And then he mentions it again in verse 17 and 18. He says, I'm being poured out for the joy and the sacrifice of your faith. That actual phrase to rejoice in the Lord, it appears three times in the book. This is the second. 
The phrase rejoice in the Lord is in chapter three and verse one here in chapter four and verse four. And for the final time in chapter four and verse 10, Paul says rejoice in the Lord. He's pushing their minds, their hearts and their eyes toward God. He's saying, get your eyes there and then you can have it. It's not about our finances. It's not about our mere earthly relationships. Paul says, put your joy where this world can't take it. In first Peter, chapter one, Peter writes about Christians and their suffering and the difficulty that they're facing. But he says, your inheritance is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It can't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. And he says in first Peter, chapter one, and verse six, in this you rejoice, even though if now you're in heaviness, temptations and trials. He says the trying of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes might be found unto praise, honor and glory at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. And though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. The Christian life is one in which we can always rejoice in the Lord. Christians can count it all joy even when we're counted out because our hope is ultimately in him. James says as much in James one. He says, my brethren, count it all joy, not when everything's going well, when you fall into trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith will ultimately make you the complete person that God wants you to be in Christ. We don't need fair weather conditions to rejoice. We just need to remember that our joy is ultimately tied to the Lord and there's nothing this world can do about it. And so Paul writes to the Christians there and he says, rejoice. But I want you to appreciate something else. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. It's a command, but it's in the plural. Paul is actually saying, y'all rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say y'all rejoice. He's saying all of you guys do it together. One social scientist said, you know, it's possible to be angry alone, to be depressed alone, to be anxious alone. But he said people rarely laugh and love alone because joy shared is joy sustained. The idea is when you're anxious, when you're struggling to find mental peace, the first thing you want to do, and it's only natural, is to retreat and get away from everybody and soak alone. And Paul's saying, no, I want you guys to come out of this. The question is, who is the y'all in verse four? It probably is Yodi and Syntyche. But then again, it's probably the entire church at Philippi, as Paul is saying, guys, you've got to do this together. You cannot afford to break off from everybody when you feel anxious or when you feel stressed or when you're feeling this sort of angst in your soul and in your spirit. Paul says you need to learn how to rejoice with other Christians and do it together. When they beat Peter and John in Acts chapter five, they left the council of the Lord. They left the council of the Sanhedrin and Acts 541 says they rejoiced together that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I don't know what Paul would have done in Philippi if he would have been beaten and beaten alone. But Acts 16 and verse 25 says he and Silas prayed and sang hymns to God. And guess what? They did it together and they made it through. If we're going to have peace in the world of anxiety, we've got to rejoice in the Lord always. This man's name is Rocco Bellick, and he ran a series. He did a study for six years before he produced his documentary called Happy that came out in 2011. Now, he had worked with famous and rich people before. But what Bellick wanted to do was find the happiest people in the world and what brought about their happiness. He had been around the rich and famous in Hollywood and found that a lot of times the things they trusted in didn't produce happiness. After his study, what Bellick said he found is the happiest man he found was a man that he described this way. He called him a dirt poor rickshaw puller in the slums of India. The man's name was Mano Singh. When Bellic got to his house, he saw that the man's house was made out of bamboo sticks and plastic. He had raw sewage trickling on the outside. He ran up to Mr. Mano and he said, how can you be happy like this? He says, oh, I'm not poor. Though he and his family only occasionally have bowls of rice on which to survive, Mano pointed at his family and said, I'm the richest man in the world. And Bellic said, I got it. 
True happiness isn't about what you have. It's about who you have. And it's about a heart disposition that says no matter what goes on in the world, I can't have joy. It's what Habakkuk says at the end of his book, Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 through 19. Though, there, though the olives fail and there be no fruit in the vines, yet I'll rejoice in my God. I'll joy in the God of my salvation. It's this idea that says I'm going to rejoice in the Lord no matter what. You know, Paul's in prison when he writes this and he has a lot of reasons to be down on himself. But instead, Paul says, I'm going to choose joy because in the end, Christian, joy is a decision we make. It's not a feeling that we feel. It's a determination that says I'm going to think on focus on the things that bring ultimate peace. And that's ultimately God. Now, here's number three. Remember that God is near. In verse five, Paul says, let your moderation or reasonableness. The translations do verse five different. The King James says, let your moderation. The NIV and the New King James says, let your gentleness the New American Standard, your gentle spirit, all of these ideas, the ESV, your reasonableness, they're all capturing an idea from a word that just means Christians have a sort of gentle and Christ-like spirit that we're supposed to manifest. Paul says, let that be known to all people. The Lord is at hand. Now, Paul's probably saying either one of two things about how we can have peace, but the same idea runs either way, and that is God is near. What does that mean? On the one hand, Paul could be saying God is near and close to you, and so you can have peace because God lives in you. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. And based on that, we can have peace because God's near us and there's nothing that's going to happen to us that's going to destroy us. But Paul might be saying something else. Paul might be saying the Lord is at hand as in Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, all of our problems will vanish because Jesus will appear and we'll go to glory with him. Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing the, with the glory that will be revealed. And somebody says, well, Paul couldn't be talking about the second coming because nobody knows when that's going to happen. But what if he is not necessarily given a date, but saying to us, listen, right now we're closer than we've ever been before. Romans 13 and verse 11. Either way, God's near and God's close. And Paul says that'll give you peace. Now, you might be thinking, well, how can I have peace with God being near? God's problems aren't my problems. And as much as I love God and as much as I know God's present in my life, sometimes I'm struggling with earthly and immediate issues. And God seems far off and distant, almost disengaged. And Paul says he's near. Have peace. How can that work for me? Well, it is true that our problems aren't necessarily the same as God's, but he makes them his. You see, God loves us enough that he refuses to mind his own business. He adopts our problems as if they were his very own. What does David say in Psalm 23 and verse four? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Psalm 138 and verse seven. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, your right hand upholds me. God goes with us. And that doesn't stop us from having problems just because this is true. Doesn't mean we won't have issues and things that come up in our lives. But it does remove the sting. It's like a child scraping his knee out in the parking lot and he's come back in, comes in the house and mom or dad's got to pour that peroxide and that alcohol that burns like acid on the wound, you know. And what does a child say when that happens? Normally they say something along these lines or at the doctor's office when they've got to get a shot. They say, would you hold my hand? Now, listen, when you hold their hand, you don't absorb the alcohol or the peroxide or the shot if you're at the doctor's office. But there's a sense at which, at least in the mind of that child, to hold their hand and be present removes the stain. And what Paul's saying is, I know you're suffering. I know you're going through terrible times. And I know sometimes life gets in and encroaches and you feel like it's going to rob you of your peace. And while God doesn't necessarily feel and absorb the hardship the same way you do, his nearness removes the sting. 
Psalm 145 and verse 18, the psalmist says that God is near to those that call on him in truth. This is our reality. And in that we can't have peace. God is near. God's close to us. God wants to be and he draws near to us. You know, we might think of this in the reverse sometimes. I'm struggling with anxiety. I failed God. If I was stronger, I wouldn't be like this. And maybe God doesn't want anything to do with me until I get spiritually strong enough to deal with the issues on my own. And in those times, we should hear him saying, I will not abandon you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Yeah, but I prayed and I'm supposed to be a person of faith and I should be stronger. And God's saying, I will not abandon you. I'm not at peace. I'm struggling to put the promises of Scripture practically and apply them to my life. And God's saying, I have not and I will not abandon you. God is near to his people. That means as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. James four and verse eight. And no matter what it is, we can have his presence. And even though we walk through the valleys, even though we walk through the shadows, we don't walk alone. And that's enough to offer us peace. Here's number four. Paul says, replace worry with prayer. I said Philippians four and verse four is probably the most disobeyed verse in this chapter. But maybe it's verse six. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. Paul says, essentially, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Focus your thoughts and your mind on the things that you can approach God with in prayer. And by the way, that's everything. Be anxious or worried about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul's saying in times when you want to worry, give it over to God. Now, somebody says, is worry a sin? Well, there obviously are two different types of worries. There's the godly concern and then there's just sinful worry. How do you know the difference? Well, one of them draws you closer and deeper into the arms of God. And the other one eventually chokes out faith and draws you further away from him. Paul shows us this in Philippians. Look at chapter two and notice verse 20. This is godly concern. Paul uses the same word. And here he means it to praise Timothy. He's telling the Philippians, I'm going to send Timothy in verse 19. But notice verse 20. I have nobody else like you who will naturally care or be concerned about your state. What is that? It's the same word. Paul saying Timothy is worried about you and I've got nobody else like him who will do it naturally. Godly concern is biblical. But Philippians 4, 6, be careful or worried about nothing. It's the same word. Paul doesn't give you any help except to say, what are you praying about? Are you focused on the things that develop spirituality in you or have you let these worries choke out your desire to pray? You know, Paul was worried about the church. Second Corinthians eleven twenty eight. He says, my daily anxieties for the church. I'm worried about you. But here he says there is a kind of worry that will destroy and ruin faith. And I don't want you to have that. I want you to pray. First Peter five and verse seven, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. You can take it to God in prayer. Everything you can approach God with in prayer. But sometimes we do the opposite, don't we? Sometimes we reverse what Paul says in Philippians chapter four. We worry about everything and pray about nothing. And we miss our blessing. How am I going to overcome anxiety in the world? I can have peace if I decide that I'm going to be a person that's dedicated and devoted to prayer. God says, here I am. I want to receive your problems. Cast them on me. I'm here to help you out. You don't have to bear it alone. And you know what? We hold back. How many times have you gone to McDonald's and the ice cream machine has been broken? Somebody says every time, right? How many times has Amazon delivered your mail to the wrong house or maybe didn't deliver your package at all? Or maybe the airline has messed up something. You know what we do in those times? We tell everybody else. We post about it. We pout about it. And their complaint department never hears about it. The people that are really designed to hear those things never hear. And we sort of rationalize and we say, I don't got time to do that. But we do have time to complain, on the other hand. 
Paul's saying, listen, God wants to hear from you. Notice verse six. Let your request be made known to who? To God, not Facebook or social media. Tell God about your problems because he's the one that wants to hear. You don't inconvenience God, but you do insult him when you don't bring him what he says he wants to receive. Notice what the psalmist says about prayer. And we'll just go through these quickly. But the psalmist teaches us that God wants to hear from us. Psalm 34 and verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Psalm 55 and verse 17. David says evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he will hear my voice. Or Psalm 55 and verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. It's the same idea as first Peter five, seven. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Or Psalm 56 and verse three, in the time I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Or Psalm 62 and verse eight, put your trust in the Lord, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, I appreciate when Paul writes this in Philippians four and verse six, he's not at a Roman resort or at the Roma Ramada Inn. Paul's suffering. And for Paul, when Paul says he's in prison, it doesn't mean that's his punishment. In the first century, you had two options in prison. It was either to be released or to be killed. And Paul knows one of those two is his reality. That's why he says in chapter one, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. As Paul's in prison in Rome, Paul knows those are his only two options. And yet he says, don't worry, because I'm not. Twice in the book of Philippians, Paul says, I believe that I will be released. Chapter one and verse 19 and chapter two and verse 24. He's optimistic and he tells the Philippians, you got to be the same way. We don't wear out God when we pray, but we can wear out ourselves and worry. How do I overcome anxiety, at least in part, and be the person God wants me to be? It's when I replace worry with prayer. Here's number five. Receive God's peace. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says here in verse seven. The peace of God, Paul says, it surpasses all understanding and God wants to give it to us. Now, what does this mean? It surpasses all understanding. Sometimes people think this means that it's just beyond our ability to comprehend. Paul says the peace of God is just we can't even grasp what he's saying. But that's not all of what Paul means here. When Paul says the peace of God surpasses all understanding, he uses a word that actually means it's better. It excels understanding. Well, that helps us a lot, especially when we're struggling emotionally, because if the peace of God excels understanding, it means to know that we have God's peace is better than knowing the why, because we serve a God, whether we like this or not, who rarely tells us why. But Paul's saying if you get peace, you get something better than why. The peace of God is better than understanding. It's better than knowing all the wins and the hows and the whys. You've got God and that's enough. When the problems of life knock on the door of our heart, Paul's saying let the peace of God answer. Colossians 3:15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you were called in one body and be thankful. God wants to give us peace and we've got to receive it. But, you know, some of us are better givers than we are receivers. We don't really like we'll give a lot of things, but we don't like to take. I was reading a book recently. A man, Jonathan Pennington, wrote it was about preachers. And the title of the book was 25 Small Ways to Improve Your Preaching. And the first thing he says in the first chapter is all dedicated to receiving compliments. He says preachers need to learn if they're going to be better how to receive compliments. Somebody comes up at the end of a sermon and they say, great job, preacher. And the preacher trying to be humble says, no, it was all God. Pennington says, don't tell that lie, because if it was all God, it would have been a lot better. (laughs) Now, listen. Some of y'all are laughing too hard at that. Neil, David and I are going to take offense. But Pennington says, no, that's not your problem. When somebody gives you a compliment, it's insulting to say that we know God was involved. But his point is, receive it humbly without letting it corrupt you. Embrace it and appreciate it. And, you know, we're like that with God. 
Paul says the peace of God surpasses all understanding. Somebody says, not me. No, I really don't want it, God. I don't need it. You know what? Somebody else probably could use it. I don't think it's going to help me. I'm going to get it figured out and then I'll be back. We don't know how to receive. Paul says the peace of God wants to stand guard of your heart. He wants to be that security for you. But oftentimes we swat his hand. We are needy, more needy than we can ever imagine. Look at Philippians 4 and verse 19. God will supply all of your needs. And we've got more of them than we think. We can't afford to refuse anything that God's offering. Everything that God wants to give me, I need all of it. And Paul says he's given peace and you need to accept it. In the first century, the idea of peace was meaning you had national tranquility. No outside force could penetrate and do any harm. And Paul means the same thing here. No matter what's going on out there, the peace of God can give you peace in here. Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, but I've given you peace. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. John 16, 33. I've spoken these words that in me you might have peace. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. John 14, 27. Receive God's peace because he's offering it in a world that's filled with anxiety. Now, here's the last one. Reflect on good things and then practice them. Paul gives this list in verse eight where he talks about these things that we need to think on. Whatever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. And he says you need to focus your mind on these things. I know we don't believe this, but we can control what we think about. We can. I know it's hard work and I know some people struggle more than others in this area. But Paul is saying you get to decide what you think about. And we need to appreciate that so few times in our lives, the worst case scenario has happened. Very few times in your life has the worst case scenario happened. And yet, when faced with difficulty, we often fast forward those possibilities to the front of the line as the thing that probably might happen. So far, you have survived 100 percent of the worst days of your life. And that should count for something. Paul's saying you don't get to always think about the negative. And I know the rationalization. I'm guilty of the same. Well, I'm just trying to be prepared and you just never know. But for all of the excuses we can heap up, it's in direct rebellion to what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8. Make yourself think about things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report. Because Paul says in the end, if you do this right, your thoughts are no longer your master. They're your minister. They become servants to you and not you to them. But it's more than thinking. In verse nine, he says, those things you both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do them. You've got to think the right things and then do the right things. Napoleon here wrote that book in 1937, Think and Grow Rich. And it's a good book. For 20 years, he surveyed rich and wealthy people and then came up with 14 principles. But that title is sort of misleading. Nobody actually thinks and grows rich. There are no W-2s for million dollar ideas. You've actually got to get out and do something. Think and grow rich won't happen. You've got to do. And Paul says, hey, you've got to think in verse eight, but then you've got to do the things you've learned and heard and received in me. Practice them. And then the God of peace is going to be with you. He will. In verse 23, Paul says the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. He will. But you've got to practice the old King James Proverbs 23 and verse seven. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he couldn't be truer words. And Paul says, if you're going to have peace. You've got to receive this and then think about the right things and actually practice them and do them. Paul's writing to a church that's busy. Paul's writing to a church that's faithful. But Paul's also writing to a church that has issues and that's struggling. And he says, in a world that's swollen with anxiety, be people that are filled with the peace of God. I want to end this lesson just like we started and say, you know what? Some people do suffer clinically with anxiety and there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. 
But at the very same time, no matter where we fall on this spectrum, appreciate that God's word has something to say to us. Paul would say, if you need therapy, counseling or medication, by all means, do those things. But nobody can face this world without the help of almighty God and without the peace that God extends. And so receive it and embrace it. And in a word, the peace that God gives us is in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to the world, the angel said peace had arrived. Luke two and verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. And when Jesus was leaving, he told his disciples, I'm leaving, but my peace doesn't have to. John 14 and verse 27. God wants us to have peace and we can have it when we're in a right relationship with him. Just think about what God's done to give it to us. He was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Second Corinthians five nineteen. God has dealt with our biggest problem, and that is sin. What a relief. He's gone to those great depths for us so that we might draw near to him. If you are in conflict with the God of heaven this morning, you can try all the means that this world offers. You'll never be at true peace. You've got to submit. We started the conflict, but God initiated the solution. Turn to him, believing that Jesus is the Christ and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. When that happens, there may be very little that changes out here, but everything is different up there. And that's what really matters. And because of that, we can have the inner peace that Paul tells us about and we can always rejoice in the Lord. Maybe you are a Christian and you hear a lesson like this and you say, you know what? I'm just riddled and rattled with worry. And Paul says this is a communal thing. Rejoice together, pray together, help one another. It'd be our honor to go to God in prayer on your behalf. If you're at conflict with yourself inwardly or with others and you need to make it right, if this is your invitation, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.